Welcome to Politically Speaking. This is Holyrood Magazine's new podcast, and it's coming to you from lockdown. They say a week is a long time in politics, but bear with us while myself and one of my journalists, Liam Kirkcaldy, try and condense the serious stuff and keep the nonsense in too. And that was the bit that really made me want to become presenting officer, this idea that you know, someone has to protect the, the direction of travel of the parliament, uh, to stand up for parliament. I recognise that people just like me with strong beliefs and I actually want to help them be the best they can be. No, that's right. I think as ever in Scotland, there's always quite difficult to tell if there if a problem isn't as big or if we just don't want to talk about it. I'm all, that's it. I'm going to have to become angrier. I'm not, I haven't got it at the moment. I'm going to have to start fitting for ideas. Um, but I think it's just, it's part of the whole mismanagement of messages in some way. Uh, my basic question about face masks would be, does wearing a face mask harm me? And if it doesn't, well, what's the harm? Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we chart the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I'm going to be honest, I, I've got nothing for Good Week this week. It doesn't feel like there's been anything good that's happened um, at all. Oh, well, I've I've kind of got one. So um, um, an Ipsos Mori poll has come out saying that uh, there's been an increase in the number of people that actually think MPs in general tell the truth. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's it, only one in five Britons aged 18 to 75 think MPs in general tell the truth. Ooh. But it is up from last October when that was at 11%. That is so, extraordinary. Kind of a good week. What, but what I, was happening I'm, last October? There must just, <laughs> it have been worse. I was just trying to think because I guess that was when we were um, getting towards coming into potentially the general election. It was also the time of trying to prorogue Parliament, was it? To, oh, was correct, that yeah. Shortly after yeah. that, I guess. Um, yeah. To force through a no-deal <laughs> Brexit. So I suppose you can understand why faith was a little bit lower then. But um, it's, it's good news, one, yeah. So why has it gone up, though? <laughs> What? Maybe things just aren't as bad. This isn't a man-made uh, disaster in the same way. Yeah, that's true. So it was kind of a good week. Um, and I guess there's a sort of good week that merges into a bad week for me in that the, there was a, a limited lifting of some of the restrictions, which meant that people could get out and about a little bit more and see loved ones, albeit with various controls and measure. And one of those controls was obviously uh, having some control over your bladder and not using mm. the toilet. I think that merged into a bad week for me because I think particularly, I, th I look back, to only last week when I was saying what a joy it was to have my son at home <laughs> with us. Um, and then uh, as soon as there was a lifting of restrictions and it wasn't all or nothing anymore, I, I think teenagers and perhaps kids, uh, young adults in their early 20s found that nuance a bit more difficult. And we saw, you know, incredible scenes in the parks because it was beautiful weather. There were people being lifted once again for being drunk. There were stories about um, hospital staff being abused by people that had drunk too much. It was all just a bit too difficult. So it definitely merged into a bit of a bad week. Yeah, there was, um, there was almost 800 um, gatherings that were broken up by the police, apparently, the, the previous weekend, um, which yeah. is massively up on, on, on the weekend before. Um, yeah. I suppose it, it, I mean, it, it, was, it was much, much clearer to understand stay at home. You can go out once yeah. a day, and it is to understand these sort of guidelines. And you can understand also, it's, it's a lot easier to get into a kind of logic where you say, 
well, listen, if we can meet in a garden, why can't we use a toilet quickly? You know, if you can use a yeah. toilet quickly, why can't you sit in their living room? If you can sit in their living room, why can't you stay over? And, you know, it's a kind of, you can see how, how quickly lines become blurred. Yeah, you can have a barbecue, but don't eat the food. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. That's sort of a general thing anyway, probably. But then whatever we were feeling, I think what was happening and what is still happening in the US just makes this not just a bad week, but just a bad, bad time. Yeah, that's the, the horrific images and videos that are coming out of the US following um, well, the protests sparked by the killing of George, George Floyd. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's extraordinary to see, actually. I suppose the yeah. one thing you'd say is that this has happened before and you maybe just didn't have quite as much footage coming out from smartphones and from people being able to document the sort of police brutality that's, that's on show. Yeah, I think it's just the... Um... The brutality of it all, and as you say, that people people witnessed in real time the death of somebody at the knee of um, of a policeman. It was just horrendous, and I, I, I think what we're seeing, and we've seen the protests happening here in Britain too, but also Trump. Trump is just so awful anyway, but his response has been so appalling. And if you if you'd like to indulge me just slightly, there's just a particular piece of text. He was being interviewed by Brian Kilmeade of Fox News, mm -hmm. and he was asked, um, but how do you handle the law enforcement part of all of this, part of the protest? And this is Trump's response. He said, I'll try not to do an impersonation, but he said, well, I think you have to get better than what they've been doing. I mean, obviously, this was a terrible thing, and I've spoken about it numerous times in various speeches. And you know, it's interesting. I spoke about it when we launched a very successful rocket, a tremendous program that culminated on that day. And obviously it goes on from there. But I then made a speech and it was a speech about the rocket. And I devoted 25% of the speech probably to what happened or more to what happened with respect to George Floyd. And it was, and then you listen to news. Oh, he doesn't talk about George Floyd. The rocket went off. I then made a speech and I talked about George Floyd, but they said he didn't talk about George Floyd. Half, maybe even almost half of the speech, but a large proportion of the speech was devoted exactly to that. And so, you know, with the media, you basically, no matter what you do, it's never going to be good enough. But the people understand that. That was the president of the United States. Yeah. I mean, it's, just, it is, it's starting to raise questions about, when, I mean, it looks like a police state. You know, the, the images you're seeing coming out of there, you've got a heavily militarized police approach. You know, you're, you hear about there being shortages of medical equipment and shortages of testing gear, PPE, the same sort of issues that have, that have existed in the UK, but the police are kitted up like they're in action. It's you know, horrendous. And I suppose that's the one difference, really. I mean, you, there are parallels with the UK, but the one thing is you don't have the police routinely going out in such a kind of heavy... They, they don't have the same capacity to, to inflict violence. You know, you've got tasers in some cases, and there are armed police, but it's not quite the same. But you also have a president in his language making, um, basically giving authority to people to act in a certain way. I mean, when you use tabloid type phrases like when you loot, we shoot, mm. um, it's just, you know, the consequences of that become obvious. Yeah, it looks like you've got a, a police that are almost at war with their own citizens. Um, yeah. And then I don't know if you, you will have seen it, you know, the, the, the instances of tear gas being fired at people that aren't even anywhere near a protest. Not that that would be a, a good reason if they were at a protest. Yeah. And it is, I don't know. I mean, it, it almost raises questions whether there are going to be free and fair elections because it, it is the actions of a dictator. You know, he's yeah. 
he's got more institutional controls to rein him in than than other similar you know leaders like Trump are typically in states that don't have those sort of institutional protections. But you have to wonder really what's going to come next. How much worse could it get? Well, I think as well he's also. Um... Put the, he, he's denigrated the media so much that people don't respect that either. And mm -hmm. when you're talking about tear gas and um, rubber bullets being shot in crowds, I mean, they, they were arming, they were throwing tear um, gas at the media, who were clearly media. Mm -hmm. Not good. No, and you know, you've also you've even got George W. Bush coming out. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't open condemnation, but his statement was really, really critical. If you read between mm. the lines, you know these are Republicans. These are yeah. these are people that should be on his side that are obviously just considering it completely indefensible. And yeah. then obviously closer closer to home, where now we've now got um, demonstrations happening in the UK. There's one. There's a few planned in Scotland um, this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I've got. I mean, there's a stat here that since 1990, 1,741 people have died in England and Wales following contact with the police. None have ever been prosecuted. So you'll see demonstrators and protesters in, in the UK arguing that there's a very similar situation here. And I certainly think there's probably a similar feeling among certain communities in the UK. I think, um, you know, in our own parliament, we've had comments, obviously, from Humza and Anna Sawa about how they feel about the lack of um, black and ethnic minority representation within the Scottish parliament. And that's very true. Um, and I guess it comes back to that whole argument again about, you know, we are not without blemish. No, that's right. I think as ever in Scotland, there's always quite difficult to tell if there if a problem isn't as big, or if we just don't want to talk about it. Um, yeah. You know, I've got here. I think if if I'm right, I could be off by a couple here, but I think there have been 306 MSPs in the history of the Scottish Parliament. Uh, 306, and four have come from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. None were women. Uh, yeah. In fact, they were all all four were Scottish Pakistani men. And um, we've got a we've got a big feature on this in the next issue as well. I think there, there was an interesting tweet as well, wasn't there, about there are actually more white MSPs come from one family called the Ewings than yeah. there were um, black and ethnic minority MSPs. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think do you think Scotland is more uncomfortable discussing these sort of issues? Is it something that we we don't like talking about? I, I'm just not sure. I think it's um, it, it, it's an issue that clearly touches Scotland, and we tend to perhaps think we're exceptional and that these aren't uh, matters that should concern us. But you know, graphically put by both Annas and Humza, racism exists in Scotland, and we would be very silly to pretend that it doesn't. So, all in all, a pretty bad week, I'm afraid. Pretty dismal. Okay, so no magazine um, going to print last week, Mandu. We've got one going out next week. Um, this is the yeah. part of the show where we usually take a quick look at the week in politics. I don't know where you want to start. Maybe Westminster is more interesting at the moment. I, well, I think I think there's a connection um, in terms of voting and mm -hmm. the way that they are sitting at the moment. So I suppose what I'd want to turn to first is uh, what we've called the Reese Mogg Conga. Oh, um, yeah. So this was where MPs basically had to return to Westminster from all parts of the country, despite rules in place about travel and social distancing, to join a 90-minute long queue of other MPs to physically vote, to end virtual voting because of a proposal by the Commons leader, Jacob Reese Mogg, who we all know lives in another century, where clearly voting can only happen if you actually put yourself at risk. Yes, it was the Corona Conga. 
Yeah, yeah, um, it was, and it was quite a sight. Yeah, so we've there was a, obviously a pretty forceful um, reaction from opposition parties as well as campaign groups. The Quality and Human Rights Commission challenged the proposals as potentially locking out disabled and shielding MPs. The Electoral Reform yeah. Society branded it farcical. Um, mm-hmm. Our sister publication, The House, did actually get a piece by Jacob Rees-Mogg um, in which he tries to you know defend the decision. Um, he says that they weren't needed anymore. Um, the virtual parliament brought us through the peak of the pandemic, but it's no longer necessary to make the compromises it demanded. We can do so much better. So how do you do better, Mandy? A, a one kilometre conga line. Exactly. And and actually, do you know, one of the most sombre aspects of that whole comedic scene, I suppose, was when the Shadow Commons leader, Valerie Vaz, asked what risk assessments the government had done for black and ethnic minority MPs and the workers in the parliament. And she said, we are twice as likely to die, referring to the stats about COVID. Please stop peddling the myth that we only work when we're in the House of Commons. And actually, a number of Scottish MPs, because of the distances that they were meant to travel to get to the House of Commons, had lots to say. And one in particular, Jamie Stone, uh, the Lib Dem MP for Caithness, he is the main carer for his um, wife, has been for 21 years. Um, She's disabled, she's in a wheelchair. He could not go to Westminster for obvious reasons, but wasn't even allowed a proxy vote. So his argument was that his constituents had been disenfranchised by this move. Yeah. I mean, there's probably an argument that the Commons isn't particularly safe at the best of times. You know, this is a building that's fallen down, that's in serious serious need of repair. There isn't enough space for all the MPs when they're all there anyway. And the most extraordinary thing about it is that you've got the Speaker who's already said it's not safe. It's not safe to do this. And well, then, you well know, actually, Public Health England, I think, had said it's not safe to do this. And yeah. yet, because of the social distancing issues, mm-hmm. and yet, as you say, a speaker as well is saying we shouldn't be doing this, and there they are all doing it. Yeah. And then, yeah, beyond that, you've obviously got the, the, the risk of MPs travelling from central London back to a rural area of the UK. It doesn't really matter where, even if they're not shielding, you know, even if, they're, if they are just travelling more than is strictly necessary. I think they did, they did backtrack a little bit and say, we can still take part remotely, you just can't vote remotely, which is basically useless, I guess, if you, if you want them to be able to vote. Yeah, and actually, Alistair Kamaika, well, I think a number of people said that it was a very, almost um, a London bias type proposal, because you had to be in driving distance, and you had a Liberal Democrat MP for Orkney and Shetland, Alistair Kamaika, has said, well, he, it's irresponsible and it's risky, and he now is going to have to stay in London for the duration and self-isolate. Um, yeah, he, he did, I, to be fair, he did have a great line, actually, um, Alistair Carmichael about it looking like exercise hour in a category C prison for white collar criminals. That's following the watching them all being herded down the line. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting that um, it was the SNP that then picked up on the line and the image and said Westminster not working. Yeah, that's um, a good poster, that isn't it? A, well, that was a throwback to the 1978 Tory campaign, uh, Tory campaign poster, which I, you won't remember, but I do. Um, they'd actually used actors and Tory uh, staff for that poster. It was Labour isn't working. No, I remember, um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think people got the point. Yes. And then over to in the Scottish Parliament, we had a bit of a fallout surrounding face masks this week as well. 
Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the, the face mask situation, I think, has been odd, at least. I mean, throughout the, the whole issue around COVID, at one point we were being told that face masks were actually harmful, I think, to us. I think Michael Gove said that it would make our behaviour more cavalier and put us more at risk of catching COVID. Um, now we've got a situation where... Westminster have said, or uh, Boris Johnson has said that face masks on public transport will be compulsory in England from the 15th of June. That so far is not the case in Scotland. So it's had people asking questions of, so you wear a face mask if you get on a train in London, but then you can take it off when you get to Scotland, but you can't do that vice versa. Um, but I think it's just, it's part of the whole mismanagement of messages in some way. Uh, my basic question about face masks would be, does wearing a face mask harm me? And if it doesn't, well, what's the harm? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they, they don't seem to be particularly widespread in supermarkets at the moment. You know, I've, maybe it's 50-50 or something, but even the, even the staff working there aren't wearing them um, in a lot of supermarkets anyway. Yeah. And did we not have Mike Russell saying that you should stare out people that aren't wearing them? We did. I mean, it raises questions about what supermarkets Mike Russell's been going to, because there's absolutely no way I'm going to my local supermarket and staring down <laughs> folks that I don't like the look of. I mean, yeah. that's a surefire way to get punched. Like, uh, I mean, I think, in fairness to him, I think it was a little bit, it was taken a little bit out of context. Um, I think the point he was trying to make was that it should be normalised, so it's strange not to be wearing a face mask. Um, Absolutely. And I suppose that shows how things have changed. You know, I mean, it wasn't, it was probably not that long ago that you would find it very odd to see somebody wearing a face mask in the street. Yeah. Um, and I think it will become the norm. Yeah. I mean, you know, the science clearly is mixed on it, but I do just go back to that point of does it do you any harm? And if not, why not? Yeah, that's right. It's, I mean, the UK has kind of obviously moved away from public shaming as a um, as a criminal punishment, um, probably for pretty good reason. But I think one of the things that's come out of this pandemic is that there is a kind of, especially with, again, I go back to social media, you know, the way people are sort of phone, uh, filming people breaking rules or stretching rules and putting them out. It's, it's almost like there kind of is a resurgence of public shaming going on at people that aren't following the rules, the people that aren't wearing face masks when they should be. And I, I guess that's something that you really want to avoid as well. Yeah, although obviously the opposite again with Trump. Who, yeah. he, there was a, a particular journalist wearing a face mask who asked him a question and Trump basically accused him of just wanting to be politically correct by refusing to take off his mask um, when he was asking a question as if the virus somehow recognises good manners or not. Yeah, there's, a, there's always been a tendency to kind of conflate political correctness with health and basic health and safety policy. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was think... complaining about Joe Biden wearing one too, uh, or Sleepy Joe Biden, as he as he calls him. <laughs> Sleepy Joe Biden. Sleepy Joe Biden. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know why I'm not called Sleepy Liam Kakadi, to be honest. Well, time. you are actually. <laughs> yeah, behind my back. <laughs> you were snoozing when we called you that. That's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> You know, just going back to um, Parliament and how it operates, uh, I mean, this week was interesting in the Scottish Parliament because they have looked at, well, the presiding officers looked at new ways of working over the summer in particular. Um, and in fact, we're about to hear an interview that I did with him, but I was basically saying to him, he isn't 
going to make himself popular by suggesting parliamentarians should work throughout the summer. Um, but they are also going to be coming back earlier on August the 11th. So that will coincide with um, the schools going back. Mm. OK, so are we going to hear about that now? We are. Um, so, Ken McIntosh, for people that don't know you, you're a former Labour MSP and your role now as presiding officer is kind of like the Speaker of the House of Commons, but without the fancy clothes and you don't get to shout order. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us what a PO is? Yes. Um, well, the most obvious role is uh, keeping order in the chamber and uh, selecting questions and um, making sure business runs the time and so on. Uh, but it's, it's funny, it's taken me quite a while to realise how unlike an MSP you are. I mean, I'm still an MSP, so I still have constituents here in the West of Scotland to write to me and approach me and so on, and I try to help. But I can no longer um, ask questions or take part in debates at all. Uh, I'm no longer a member of a political party, so and that's been the case for four years. Uh, so you, you are totally impartial. Your job is essentially to make sure that all other MSPs have the chance to make the points they want to make. So um, to stand up and to have the floor and to make sure that you do so fairly, proportionately and so on. And I've got a couple of other duties uh, which you wouldn't see. Um, I chair the, there's two, there's two bodies which run the parliament. One's the bureau and one's the corporate body. The bureau is the political body with um, representatives from each of the parties on it. And I chair that, and that's how you decide what's going to be debated, what parliamentary business is. And the other one is, of course, the corporate body, which runs the institution itself, provides all the services, the clerking support, security, catering, everything like that. Um, and then I've got a third duty, which is um, representing the parliament, um, both for, you know, when we receive guests, and also when I go and represent it, uh, when I'm speaking to, for example, Westminster, colleagues at Westminster, or the Wales, and so on. Now, you see, obviously, you did give up party membership to become the PO. Was that a difficult decision for a Labour politician who'd watched his party fall from political hegemony in Scotland to then being behind the Tories? Yes, it was, but I, I, mean, I went into it with my eyes open. I'll, I'll put it this way. Nobody goes into politics to become presiding officer. You, know, you go into politics to change things because you've got views and opinions and you want to make the world a better place, and that goes for every MSP in every single party. Um, but I also, the, the, I mean, that, that's why you, it's not just why you become an MSP, it's why you might join a political party in the first place or become politically active. But one of the reasons, one of the main reasons I've had that I actually stood for Parliament is because I believe in the Scottish Parliament. I really believed in devolution. I really wanted the Parliament to work. And I, I particularly believed in the principles on which the Parliament was founded. This idea that we'd um, do politics in a different way, a, a more consensual way if possible, um, um, a much more participative, open, accessible parliament. And um, I, I mean, I very, very much believe that. And that's, that was the spark that made me put my name forward as an actual candidate. And that was the bit that really made me want to become presenting officer. This idea that you know someone has to protect the, the direction of travel of the parliament, uh, to stand up for parliament. And, and I've, I've never, ever disliked or, um, or uh, been antagonistic to MSPs from other parties because I recognise there are people just like me with strong beliefs and I actually want to help them be the best they can be. So, you know, you've got these two different things. But yeah, you, you have to, you absolutely have to put all your uh, your own political views to one side. And, uh, but, you know, I went into that with my eyes open. I used to work, before I became an MSP, I worked for the BBC. It's very similar. You, you know, you, your job is to provide 
impartial uh, news and information to people. So that doesn't mean you don't have your own views, but your job is to be impartial. And, and if you take your job seriously, you do it properly. And what's been the, the biggest difference for you sitting on, if you like, the other side of the bench? Um, oh, there's so many differences, I can't tell you. It's an incredibly privileged position, which I, I think I appreciated a little bit, but I didn't really appreciate it until I did it. So being an MSP, you hold a public office, that's a very privileged position, an, an honour which um, that there's no MSP isn't aware of. When you become presenting officer, all your fellow MSPs then vote for you to become presenting officer and you represent the parliament and that is, and you, and you are treated incredibly um, in, in a very special way. And it's not you, it's the office you hold, but I'm very conscious of that. Um, but it's but it's different. I mean, one of the one of the things that I learned, for example, was you, because you're you're not just detached. Um, you are actually, I mean, just in an elevated position in the sense of I sit above the chamber just slightly. And so the, my first reaction over that first year, in particular, was um, watching all my my colleagues and thinking, "Oh, I used to do that. Don't don't, don't do it that way. No, that's not that we ask that question." And I'm just thinking. Oh, I so wish I could go back and do it all over again. I would, I would be so much better at being an MSP now, having been presenting officer. And of course, it's too late. You know, <laughs> that's the way it goes. That's really interesting. I, I, and the other thing, I suppose, I spoke to Trisha Marwick, who was obviously the presiding officer before you, and she said that one of the hardest things for her was almost leaving behind her political family, that she missed going to party membership uh, meetings um, and just being around. A, that's quite a... She felt almost bereaved about that side of things. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally recognise that. When you leave your political party, you 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 literally lose all contact. Well, not all contact, but I mean, um, it's all the little things. I mean, you might not think this, but uh, elections are quite fun times. You know, you're going around knocking on doors and putting leaflets through and so on. And, and these are people that you work that you see, you know, week in week out or something, month in month month out. And then that's all removed from you, so you don't see them at all, not at all. And it's very strange. So. Um, yeah, and, it, and it creeps up on you as well. You don't realise time passes. You know, so you might be two years into the job before you you bump into somebody that you, that you used to see monthly or weekly, and you realise you haven't seen them for ages because you've deliberately cut these ties. I actually spend. I know this sounds odd. I probably spend more time with colleagues in the SNP and the Conservative groups and the Liberals and Greens than I do with my former Labour colleagues, which is again very strange. Possibly, possibly because um, I was conscious from the very start, you know, not to be, you know, it's not just a question of being impartial, it's making sure that people recognise you're impartial and, and can see you are. Um, so so things like, you know, where, where do you have lunch, who do you sit next to and so on, these are little, <laughs> tiny little things. Um, but you have, to be, you have to be careful about it because, you know, you're in a position and you have to respect that position. So, so yeah, That's it, what, it's a, it's what a strange experience. What do you sit and have lunch but, on your own, Ken? We didn't do it with my eyes open, I have no regrets about it at all. Well, you're not exactly going to make yourself popular by <laughs> no, telling no, no. politicians <laughs> that they need to work <laughs> over the summer. So, so, so tell me about what's happened this week and what's been proposed. Yeah, this week, well, um, a very strange week for me. A, a bizarre. This is such a surreal time altogether. I mean, a very painful time for so many people, um, but just odd, you know, this whole lockdown. And then out of the blue, last week, uh, the week so a week Monday there. Um, I got. I woke up in the morning at 4:30 with a, uh, something wrong with my tummy. I thought I had food poisoning, 
My six nearly went to hospital, so I ended up with appendicitis and getting my appendix out. So this is really odd. In the middle of this lockdown, I end up in you know, I'm a healthy person. I've never done anything wrong with me. End up in hospital. He also I was out the next day. It was very, it was very interesting and um, absolutely wonderful people at uh, EMRs and Wishaw. But um, so I had that, and then this this week, therefore, was my first week back. So I had a week off, and then I came back this week. And uh, um, I would say it was quite a subdued week, actually. Um, quite quiet. I mean, I'm, I'm very aware of, you know, when things are fractious or when people are getting on or not getting on. Um, tone was quite low-key this week. Um, so it's a very serious subject we're dealing with. Every single week, essentially, we're dealing with people dying. So that tends to make it quite, um, it affects the tone a, a lot, as you can imagine. Um, but yeah, no, we had, uh, um, we, we had, uh, you know, it's a different week at the moment. We have two sitting days and we have one virtual day. Um, so we're not quite back to normal. Um, but you can see the beginning of the easing of lockdown happening because that had happened at the weekend before. And again, that's having an effect on all of us. So it's that whole transfer from one extreme back to normality. But the bit in between is a, a journey we're all on. So the proposal, though, is to work more over the summer and also to come back earlier after summer recess. I suppose that's the point I'm making about that's not going to make you terribly popular either. <laughs> no, there's there's lots of decisions I take, very few of which are, I would describe um, popular as the motivation or the outcome. Um, well, it's quite clear that while we're in the middle of this pandemic and um, we're still um, we're rolling at phase two of the, the road out, the road to recovery, um, that, the, the, well, I mean, the government's ha- the, the First Minister's holding daily press conferences, so there is quite obviously, quite clearly, a need for parliamentary scrutiny. But at the same time, you're trying to balance that with making sure that people do get back to normality, that they do have some structure to their lives and so on. Uh, but we're, we're across legislation. I was worried that we would have a backlog of legislation and so on. But actually, government business, government have managed to keep on top of their business. Um, there are still uh, members' bills and other things, but there's no pressing need to meet over the summer to deal with that um however i think it would be odd we'd we'd agreed last year just as as you normally would that you'd have a summer recess when members would be back at the constituencies going around all the constituencies well they they can't do that Uh, and uh, schools coming back on the 11th of august so it struck i think you know a big discussion at bureau and it struck all of us that uh, and to to hold recess in the normal way would not be appropriate so we're trying to get the balance right, and we agreed to, yes, first of all, to come back early when the schools are coming back. So I think if schools are coming back, people will be going back to work at that point, and I think Parliament itself, it's quite a good date for the Parliament to try to resume um, uh, or move back to normality. And over the summer, we went for two particular sitting days, the 9th and the 30th of July. And those are the review dates. You know, the government is reviewing its... Um, it's a response to the pandemic every three weeks um, as part of the, the well, part of parliamentary regulations in fact. So those two days we will have sittings in, in uh, Holyrood, um, but on the other Thursdays in between we will have virtual sessions so that we have at least the opportunity every week to question ministers and uh, to raise any issues that are, are, are ongoing which are about to be. And that was the compromise we came to. Given that they will be sitting perhaps at times that they would not have during the summer, are you going to make concessions like, you know, let them wear summer shorts or give out ice creams or anything like that? 
Yeah, we all saw the story. I think it was Gavin Newlands, one of my colleagues just up the road here in the West, yeah. uh, turned up wearing shorts. I think, yes. Can, can I just say that when I, when I read these stories, I know a lot of colleagues view them as amusement, I nearly always have a little shudder. <laughs> just, you know, when everybody, whenever anybody indulges in, um, I don't know what you might describe it as, antics in Parliament, you know, protests, defying the Speaker, whatever else, I immediately think, oh, I hope they're not going to do that in Hollywood. <laughs> so, um, no, I, I am not encouraging, I am absolutely not encouraging anybody to come in in t shirt and shorts over the summer. I think, to be fair, Gavin Newlands, um, he drove down from his constituency to Westminster and said that actually the drive down had taken, uh, had been a lot quicker than he thought and had just managed to rush into Parliament wearing his shorts. So he did sort of explain it, I guess. Yeah, yes, no, no, it's, I'm, I'm, it's up to, um, you know, Gavin and, and uh, the Speaker to decide what's appropriate in Westminster. All I'm suggesting is that here, um, you know, we, we don't have a dress code, but I, I think you expect um, members to behave, uh, to, to dress appropriately. The interesting thing about lockdown, of course, is that we're all online all the time, so we're doing these visual meetings, and um, the, the, uh, the dress code has become this big thing again because, so we have um, uh, Stuart Stevenson, I mean, you use Stuart as an example, who um, stands up in his front room, fully dressed, three-piece or two-piece suit, tie Thank on. God. Yes, ab absolutely. Yes, I know. That's what I like. Thank goodness we're maintaining standards for us all. You know, and, uh, Wearing clothes. And, <laughs> okay, let's not take that any further, Mandy. And, not vision. Uh, and uh, so, so Stuart does that. But most people, and this is applying across the board, isn't it? Most people have uh, abandoned the tie and yeah. um, uh, and in fact it, it, it's it's sometimes a dilemma of you know what what kind of meeting are you going into are you going to put a tie or are you going to put a shirt on or will you wear a sort of you know sports top you know so people are are dressing in, in all sorts of different ways for different meetings online and the parliamentary yeah. ones well yeah well they are and for the parliamentary ones we have informal parliamentary meetings and then we have the formal meetings and for the most part, people are dressing more formally for the formal meetings, but they're, they're not wearing ties, they're not wearing jackets uh, for the most part. So so already you can see all sorts of changes, which, um, you know, are, they're, they're bound to bleed over into um, into uh, uh, normal life, as it were, when it resumes. So Have you had to have any words with anybody about standards? No, no, I haven't. Had, uh, do you know, one of the best things that ever happened in Parliament was uh, one of the members who shall remain nameless at the moment was, uh, um, all the members, can I just say, all the members are very conscious of their, their duties and responsibilities and take, take it seriously. So if they happen to feel comfortable in perhaps more casual attire than others, then, you know, it's, it's not because they're doing so, they're not deliberately trying to insult anybody. Uh, but one of the members uh, early on who had his jacket off in the back of his chair in the chamber, and I was thinking, well, I hope he's going to put his jacket on before he stands up to speak. So I knew I was going to call him shortly. Um, one of the um, one of the security guards, um, a woman in her fifties or sixties, I think, um, actually went over to him. It, it, this is in the chamber and said, uh, "Excuse me, sir, I think you should put your jacket on before you speak." And like, this is totally unbidden. She she just took this upon herself. And of course. When somebody, if a, if, a, if a woman in her 50s or 60s tells you to put your jacket on, you put your jacket on. 
So he did. So, so I've I've decided from now on if I've got any issues, I'm going to ask her to go and have a quiet word with any of the members rather than do it myself. I like to think that people might do what I tell them as well. Then that's that's a good lesson to have learned. Yeah. Um, just in terms of the time spent in the Parliament, and you and I have discussed this before. So your first son Douglas was born five days before you first got elected in May 1999. You went on to have five more children. In Ken, you've got six children. Do, not, do you not think you could have benefited more from actually spending time at work? <laughs> one of the reasons I, I was sort of half joking about it this week, but one of the reasons I went back to work, or back to Edinburgh that is, uh, this week, when people were saying, oh, you just had an operation, you should stay at home. I said, I'm more likely to do myself a mischief with the six kids running around at home than I am, you know, when I'm at work, when I get treated like royalty. So, um, so yeah, no, the uh, I should also say by the way, what I know this is odd, but one of the odd, um, fortuitous and sort of guilty pleasures of this pandemic is that all the kids are at home. So I've had, uh, and I, I saw you writing about this in your editorial about how much you enjoyed your son being home, and I have to say, I absolutely agreed with every word that you were saying. We've got the kids all back at home. You know, the the, the two older ones at the yeah. university now, and it's just it's great. It's just fantastic yeah. to have them sort of this stolen moment um, of, of, uh, of company. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah I, well, you, you can't ever regret having kids. No, you can't ever, no, no matter how, how, how uh, difficult. Occasionally. Yeah, well, you know, a few minutes maybe. <laughs> I mean, interesting, actually, Ken, because a week on from writing that editorial about how much I've loved having Kyle at home during the lockdown, the lifting of restrictions or the limited lifting of restrictions, I think, has created more problems. I think teenagers and young adults, the, the, the almost black and white of you can do nothing was easier, I found. We've probably had more tensions in the last week. Well, you're absolutely right. The, the, uh, we're at this difficult stage when we're moving from, we've all taken this collective decision for the good of us all um, to, to, to live in this uh, lockdown period. And then we're going to sort of phase back to normality. And, and obviously that's, that means uh, a shifting of risk from the collective and the society and communal good to the individual and uh, taking individual responsibility for your own health and others and and that's that's very tricky so yeah. you're right you know the passing you know wh when someone tells you uh, young people or old people but young people perhaps more than others you, you can't do this that's fair enough nice and clear but then they say well we're going to basically allow you you know, so it's quite a difficult thing to take away people's liberty like the way we have it. Then you say, right, we're going to give it back. We're going to give you responsibility now. It's your choice. That is difficult. And some people will make, young people in particular, because they have fewer responsibilities than, than older adults, then they, they are more likely to take risks, which is you know, the joy of being young, freedom of being young. So, you know, it, it is bound to create frictions, but I'll be honest yeah. with you, and, and, and added on top of that, they're not at risk. This is the other thing. They are... We, we are asking them to behave in an entirely altruistic way because not one of them is ever, well, you know, maybe a tiny number might fall ill with this um, terrible disease, but they're not going to suffer. So we're asking them, you know, to miss out all these, oh, it breaks my heart to think all these people are missing their graduations and leaving school and all these rites yeah. of passage at this young age and, and they're losing it all. They're not getting, getting to spend time with their friends, you know, their boyfriends and girlfriends and you know hang out together at the, the best time of your life 
So I, I have so much sympathy for them and, and the, the choices they have to make. And the fact that, that they are so well behaved and that they are doing, you know, that they are so responsible, I think is a, is, is a credit to the world we live in. I mean, actually on that, because it's all very human and we're all experiencing it. And in some ways in the parliament, you're in that bird's eye seat looking straight at the first minister. When you look at the responsibility that she's carrying on her shoulders, what do you think about that? I, I have to say, I think the First Minister has been remarkable, just utterly remarkable. I mean, every single day. Um, and I noticed the other day she, she wasn't even able to spend time with her own family recently. Um, and it was very interesting. Um, there was a question, Neil Findlay asked her a question just recently in which, um, in which she almost, you know, almost broke, you know, the, the, the emotion rose to the surface. But you can see that she's wrestling with this all the time. You can see how seriously she takes it and uh, um, yeah, I mean who on earth would swap places huh, at a time like this? And just just to end, um, Ken, how would you shout order if in fact you had to do it in the Scottish Parliament? <laughs> no, um, well I mean, each, each speaker has their own style. The, the thing about, the, the way I see the job, the last thing I'm interested in doing is rebuking or humiliating or putting down members. That's not that's not my job in my role. My job is to, quite the reverse, is to support them. What I'm trying to do is give them their moment on the floor of the chamber or in whatever other situation so they have the chance to do the job they want to do, which is to stand up for the people they represent. So I'm trying to support them. I'm trying to give them confidence. I'm trying to say, okay, everyone, listen, this is this member's chance to speak. They've got a proper point they want to get across and we'll hear the answer. And so I'm I'm always trying to, I'm, I'm behind them. And I can tell you the last thing I'm ever going to do is, is uh, you know, put them down or, or, or make them feel small or make them stumble or stutter. Um, so I, it, it's, it, it's not my style. And, um, you know, I, I've only ever removed one member from the chamber in the whole time. And I'm, I'm quite pleased that's the case. I don't, um, and members themselves, I know what members are like. They're, they're not there. They're not a bunch of troublemakers um, who are who are you know they're, they're passionate about what they believe, but they're, but they're not trying to offend or or um, or be difficult. They just want to get the message across, and sometimes that comes out uh, you know in, in a quite an, an, it can be quite an angry or confrontational way. Um, but politics is about both reason and passion, and you've got to give it its place. So yeah, no, I've never been tempted to do that. Has it made you feel differently then about politicians and politics? Uh, yeah, has it or has it not? Yes, um, it's been. It has been a, a, an education. There's no doubt about it. It has been a, a, a very much a learning experience for me. Um, I've, I've always quite liked other politicians, though I know it sounds funny. There's, when you're in a political party, there's a little bit of a barrier between you. You're in, you're in a tribe, you know, and, and there are loyalties and there's a trust factor there which is, is it's a tricky issue in politics it's so important trust and um, a political party divides can can get in the way sometimes but I've always I've always admired people who have opinions and beliefs and are willing to stand up for them because it shows it shows how much they care about and it shows what they care about uh, so I don't uh, you know when it gets a bit personal and, and the rest of it and, and there are a few individuals around who you know who are, who are in it for themselves or for about power, but they are really the exception. Vast majority are quite um, 
unselfish, quite the reverse, they're very public-spirited, they're really in it for others. So I've always thought that, and if anything, I'd say my, my um, position now just confirms that it's, it's, it is very much the case. And are you optimistic that um, the way we've all pulled together around COVID, that perhaps politics might be less partisan? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I, 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 I live in hope that it will be. But I always have that. That was one of the reasons I, I wanted to stand for the Scottish Parliament because it offered that kind of um, that that kind of vision of politics that we you'd work across party lines as well as within party. People are people are, are. There's nothing wrong with being in a political party. Quite the reverse. You know, political parties get things done. They bring people together. You know, coalesce around ideas and with an agenda. Um, it's just when you take it too far. That's all. It's just when you take it too far and you exclude and you put down the other parties. Um, you know. Sometimes the, the the language gets a bit too vitriolic, but at the moment, I, I genuinely don't know which way we're going to go. You can see um, a lot of people clearly wanting to learn the lessons from this pandemic, and you know, not to go back to the society as we had it before, but to to take the opportunity to address so many of the wrongs that have had a light shine shone on them through this um, through this whole COVID nineteen outbreak. But at the same time. You know, you can't help but see all sorts of other forces at work which um, are, are working in the opposite direction. So the impact has been far, felt far worse by those in vulnerable communities and um, uh, as we're seeing the, the, the race riots in America at the moment, you know, um, it, the, the, the COVID pandemic hasn't hit people fairly or equally um, because we don't live in a fair and equal society. And it's not necessarily the case that everybody responds positively to that. You could quite easily have a crackdown, uh, you know, authoritarianism. You know, there's, there's all sorts of directions we go in. But these are choices. These are political choices, in fact. So um, I, I, I certainly hope, because I am an optimist, I certainly hope we will take the right ones. Um, but it's not, it's not 100% clear that will be the case. Okay, so it's that time of the show where we get your rant, Mandy. That's part of your um, continued transformation into someone grumbling at the side of a pub. Um, what have you got to What have you got to grumble to us about this week? You know, there may be a point where I actually do run out of rants, Liam, and you'll have to think of something oh, yourself. That's it. I'm going to have to become angrier. I'm not. <laughs> I haven't got it at the moment. I'm going to have to start fitting for ideas. Say, well, here's an idea that you should work on for the next week. Uh -huh. Sourdough starters and one-upmanship around homemade bread. I mean, um, we, sorry, just when we established this part of the show, it wasn't meant to just settle grudges on your behalf. Especially domestic ones. It's the main reason anyone becomes a newspaper columnist, so they can smite their enemies. So who's, who's wronged you? Has someone beaten you at a sourdough? No, I'm not interested in sourdough. I've got a husband that makes sourdough, but I've witnessed the number of people on social media asking for help with their sourdough starter. It's not difficult, apparently, but I've not tried it. Anyway, that isn't my rant, actually, Liam. Right. My, rant, my rant is, so the Scottish Government have just published the results or the analysis of a consultation they had done around um, a no-smoking ban outside hospitals. 
now. A no smoking ban outside hospitals is already a thing, but there needs to be secondary legislation to enforce um, the, 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 the proposals around that, if you like. So the results of the Scottish Government consultation on smoking outside hospitals has said a majority of respondents support a 15-metre enforcement zone to protect people from the dangers of secondhand smoke. And frankly, I'd have thought it goes without saying that smoking outside hospitals should be banned. But for anyone that has had to march past the line of patients in their pyjamas, and particularly pregnant women outside hospitals smoking, Mm-hmm. It, it just um, clearly that message has not got through. So it is already an offence, but before the penalties can be imposed, secondary legislation needs to be passed on technical matters, which include the distance of a no smoking zone, the wording of the no smoking notices, and whether there are any areas in and around a hospital where there is a, a no need for a no smoking zone. I mean, I would have thought that was a completely easy one to answer. There should be no area around a hospital where you're allowed to smoke. 9,000 deaths, 100,000 hospitalizations a year because of smoking. We've just locked the country down to protect lives and the NHS. Is there any argument for saying that people should be allowed anywhere near a hospital if they want to smoke? Well, what, what does staff do at present if they're smokers? You know, if it's a doctor or a nurse, I, all I would say is I don't know if I would want to approach one in the middle of the pandemic and say that they shouldn't be having a fag. Oh, you see, my rant has to, I get stumped for words because I, I would probably just say they shouldn't be smoking. You're going to ban them now. They, <laughs> just, yeah, I think they should be practicing what they preach. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, you know, look, I've smoked on and off at particular points in my life, particularly if I have to work with uh, you. Have you started smoking <laughs> since I joined Hollywood? <laughs> but it's, but it's, you know, it needs to stop. Yeah. We've, and, and and I think, do you know, if there's a, there will be lessons from what has happened with this pandemic, but one is we do listen to public health messages when it comes to a matter of life and death. And I just, I just think it should stop. And I'll end on saying politicians should do something about that. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine, available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.